God. Father, uh, would you uh, soften our hearts to you today? There's nobody here that really is trying to live a bad life. Nobody here is trying to be evil. Nobody here is just saying, God can't change me at all. Just so many people here just have one thing to say to you, God. If you want to teach me something today, please teach me. And mostly what I want to pray about this sermon is that it would be subject to your leadership and filled with your heart. God, would you please use me to uh, communicate gospel truth today? And we just think of everybody here who's hungry to grow, and I, I pray that you would help them. And, and we think of everybody here who is just wondering, I don't even know what I believe about this stuff. I pray that you would especially uh, kind of make a connection for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, what we're doing is talking our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that was ever preached. It was preached by Jesus as he started to get some fame, as the kingdom of God message was coming out of his mouth. He also was healing people. He was setting people free from dark spirituality. And he was getting a lot of people coming towards him. And he would take towards the sloped banks, the mount, so to speak, around uh, the Sea of Galilee. And he would teach people. And so uh, he taught. My, uh, my life has been greatly impacted by a man named Dallas Willard who wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount called The Divine Conspiracy. And I recommend it to you. And uh, the other day, I was trimming my beard, listening to a little selection of Dallas Willard, and I thought, boy, I'd love everybody to hear this. So here's Dallas Willard, just so you get a sense of what he says. And this evening, I want to try to build your confidence in Jesus, the Son of God. I want to try to help you understand that when you heard the words that were given a moment ago in this wonderful presentation, the words from the Sermon on the Mount, you heard the most valuable piece of knowledge that has ever been committed to human beings. It's the deepest, most profound treatment of what our life was meant to be. And when Jesus comes down to the end of it, you remember he just says very simply, those who hear my words and do them. Those who hear my words and do that, like a person, a wise person, who builds their house on the rock. And Jesus lived in earthquake country and flood country, and he knew all about that. And he knew that the house on the rock would stand. And he's talking about our life. That thing you know that you and I are going through. Some of us have been going through it a little longer than others. That process of coming to birth and growing up and, and finding our way, family and work and old age and what is called death, that process can become an eternal life by becoming a part of the life of God himself in our time. That's what it means for our lives to become eternal. It means for them to be so caught up in what God is doing in our time that they are an everlasting part of what God is doing for all time. And the invitation to you and to me is to be a part of that. Oh, I love that guy. Now, I would recommend it. There's lots of YouTube. You can YouTube Dallas Willard. You can see a lot more. He is not 
the most scintillating speaker of all time. In fact, the very first time I ever heard of him, my friend said, do you want to come with me to hear Dallas Willard? He's pretty boring, but he's good. Okay. <laughs> but every once in a while, he throws a little joke in. Like he was, he was saying in this same talk, he's saying about how we're all trying to live the good life. And he said a good way to measure whether you're living the good life is what do you want, what do you want to be on your tombstone? He goes, he says, nobody, nobody wants on their tombstone, she had good teeth, right? <laughs> In other words, sometimes we're shooting for the wrong thing. We think this will bring us happiness or this will bring us happiness. And what his great confidence is in Jesus. It's, it's so interesting, the idea of faith and confidence, what you really trust to bring you a fantastic life. He loves Jesus' message, the Sermon on the Mount. He thinks it's the most important thing that's ever been said to humanity, right? And as much as I might have ever valued it, I don't think I ever thought that. I never thought like, wow, this is the most important thing uh, that's ever been said to humanity. He, he has confidence that Jesus knows what he's talking about, that Jesus knows what is actual, what is real, that what God is like, where God is, what's God's availability, and what would it look like if human beings actually believed what Jesus was saying, what would the world look like? He puts his whole confidence in it. And then what would life like would look like? What would life look like? It would be like we are living an eternal kind of life that when what we call dying happens, we wouldn't die. That there would be something that would go on beyond that. That is the eternal life that Jesus offers us. Something of the nature of this is how it is in heaven. Then being worked out in us. But that is a foreign message. Even in churches, that's sort of a foreign message. That we could actually um, change reality. We could change our reality. We could change our family situation. We could change our relational world. We could change our communities by living out the things of Jesus. Is a kind of a foreign uh, message. I told you last week of going to two stores that were part of the same chain and one was totally chaotic. The other was in total order. And the guy who was running the department where I was shopping said to me about his chaotic store, that's just the way retail is. And I think sometimes we say, oh gosh, that's just the way the world is. There's murder, there's lust, there's enemies, you're always going to be having wars the poor, there's lots of people who are poor. And we just think, oh, that's just the way it is. But Jesus comes to show a whole other way. The Sermon on the Mount, if it were done, would change everything. There would be no more wars. There would be happy marriages. Nobody would think of themselves as being against somebody else. There would be no retaliation. Everybody would tell the truth. You go to buy a car, and the guy would just tell you the truth. It's not a very good car. Don't buy this one, right? <laughs> Right? Everybody would just tell the truth because this is the kingdom of God at hand. In heaven, nobody's going to lie about the car they're selling, right? All right? So now we got to figure out, well, is this stuff easy or hard? What is Jesus, Jesus actually saying? And so I want to just remind you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And some people, as they deal with this teaching are thinking like, wow, you are piling it on more. This is even more difficult. So difficult. So let me just show you again what, how to think about this. Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he, uh, I used this last week uh, when Jesus is talking about these guys. So the nature of their righteousness 
how right they are. I mean, righteousness is essentially just your rightness in this world, your, your being good through and through, your rightness of relationship with God. We were singing a song about it earlier, right? And Jesus quotes about the righteousness of these uh, teachers and these Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites. We always think Jesus is so nice, right? Well, yes and no. He tells the truth, right? You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, they want to say something about God, but they have no intention to be influenced by God. Their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching is merely human rules. Now, how do you think the Pharisees reacted to that? Actually, Jesus' disciples came along to report to Jesus what the Pharisees were saying. It was like this little undercurrent of talk about Jesus' uh, criticism here. The, the disciples said this, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, right? Well, not too surprising, right? If Jesus said this about you, you'd be offended too, right? You go like, oh, this whole church thing, you guys talk a good game. You don't intend to actually be influenced by any of this. It would be a, a painful thing to hear. And so this is what Jesus says in response to them making this report, okay? Jesus explains about this offensive statement. Now, you will remember that their first, uh, the, the occasion was this. They had been eating some uh, wheat without washing their hands. And, and the Pharisees said, that breaks the law. And I'm kind of with the Pharisees too. Wash your hands before you eat, right? Okay, but... But what they were saying, they're so interested in the law in and of itself. They're so interested in um, catching people being outside of God's best for them that they miss the very heart. And Jesus comes right at them. Let them alone. Leave them all alone. They're blind guides. If, a blind, if the blind lead the blind, where we get that saying, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. By the way, it's a great thing to say to Jesus. I need more explanation. I don't get it at this point, right? You spend your life asking Jesus, hey, can you explain this more? Can you fill this out for me? P Peter does that, and Jesus comes back to him. He says, are you also still not understanding or without understanding? Yes, the answer is yes, Jesus. I don't understand. So Jesus says this, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? It's a little potty humor from Jesus there, okay? All right? It's funny, all the things he talks about, but that's... He's, he's saying, look, these people are worried about somebody handling their food and then putting it in their mouth. That's, that's not what makes somebody broken, um, defiled. He uses this word defiled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. From out of the mouth comes evil, or out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus is saying, look, you know, these people are filled with dark things, and these rules will never get at them. They'll never, he says to them at one point, he goes, you clean the outside of the vessel, but you don't clean the inside, the inside. What Jesus is always going at, the righteousness that's far above the Pharisees, there is, is heart cleanness. 
Your heart being clean before the Lord. Your, his teaching, being able to affect who you actually are. And you might think, oh my gosh, this makes it just harder. This is harder. But he would offer us something like this. It's this um, parable or the story that he tells to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down at everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. Tax collectors were people who made extra money fraudulently by betraying their own townspeople to the Roman uh, invaders, occupiers. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank God. I thank you that I am not like other people. Right? That's a spirit. You see what's coming out of his mouth already, right? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. In other words, I keep the law meticulously. I am a law keeper. I am a rule keeper. I am so glad I'm not like one of those sinners. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up at heaven and he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This meal that we're going to have today, this, this meal of the Lord's uh, you know, body and blood is a meal for sinners. It's a meal for people who say, I will never be able to enter into any righteousness unless you help me, unless you go first, unless you invite me in to what you offer me. And there's two words here, both this kind of this righteousness up here and this justified. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Righteousness, being right with God and people around you, being solid, having your, your words match your heart. Speaking the kingdom of God into the world, righteousness, justice, right? And he said, he says this: this this sinner with a simple prayer, this this regular person like us in this room coming to this meal, saying, "God, have mercy on us. We're sinners. God, we're not perfect, but we need you. We we want you. We're willing to change in any different direction. God, have mercy on me, a sinner." And and this promise comes from Jesus. This is the guy who goes home righteous. He goes home filled with God's righteousness. And the other guy misses it. This whole thing's about entering into the kingdom of God. Does Jesus make it easier or harder? It's a great question. It's just like, is Jesus, when we look at him, this is that series of teachings, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Is he trying to jack it up? There are people who even, even uh, in, in our church here, as I'm trying to like, a show a way of grace are thinking like that's even harder. And yes, it is harder in that you can't use the law, you can't use law keeping to justify yourself. That never will work. But what's being offered to us is a righteousness. So to enter into the way God wants things to be. God's trying to change the entire world and God will change the whole world. This is what we believe he's making all things new, but the way he's doing it is changing heart after heart. Today, in this room, what God is trying to do is access your heart. That God would say, let me just speak to you of how things genuinely are and what is the genuine good life and what would it be like if men and women, all 
in Blue Root Vineyard would just submit to me and let the kingdom of God come, but the kingdom of God be formed in their lives. And so we're going to go through this series of, um, of uh, juxtapositions. Here's what the law says, but I say to you, the first two I talked to you about last week, and so I'm mostly not going to uh, say much about them, but I want to repeat just a bit. The word comes, you're not supposed to murder, okay? Clear enough. Nobody in here disagrees. It's the law. You know, you don't murder. But I tell you that anybody who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is just like, I'm disgusted with you, you idiot, or something worse than that. It's like a spitting sound, right? Raka is answerable to the court. And anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and remember, your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. He's just like, here's a, here's a scene from church. You're in the middle of church. You're thinking, I'm doing church, man. I got church done. You know, he's saying, no, you remember somebody's angry with you. There's a problem with a brother or a sister. Leave church. Okay, <laughs> several of you get up right now. It'd be funny, right? <laughs> Go and make it right. Just, get, just, just deal. The relationship so much important. Do righteousness. Do righteousness. The whole thing, like Dallas was saying, the whole thing ends, the whole Sermon on the Mount ends with him saying, hey, if you hear what I'm saying and you do it, this will work. If you don't do it, it will be nothing. It will be like foolishness, right? Settle matters quickly with your adversaries taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. It's like, almost like you're walking up to the courthouse, you see the adversary. And your adversary may hand you over, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You might be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. And just the idea here is that you try to be a reconciler. Try to get out in front of this thing. See, you know, I need help. We're not going to, I don't want to go the hardest way. I don't want to come under the law. I want to come at it relationally. I want to reconcile it. It's funny, uh, Ephesians has this whole pattern of what anger does. Anger is a beast. It'll, it'll get you. But it's also part of our, our human nature. And by the way, this, the one thing about this part here is Jesus takes a long time to do the murder, anger, contempt, um, reconciliation kind of thing. And then he does a shorter version of all the rest. The truth is, all the rest follow this pattern. What do you, he, he lays this out. He goes, like, let's play this all out in detail with anger and murder and stuff. And then you can sort of figure out the other ones as you go along. But the idea here is anger comes along. It's, it's natural. I, the, there's nothing the Bible says, never get angry. But in your anger, sin not, it says in Ephesians. There's, there is such an opportunity for anger to take you into a dark place, to, to make you part of the problem, to make you just kind of like part of the thing. The reason goes like, oh, we're always going to, somebody's going to be angry at me at all times, or I'm always going to be angry at somebody. I live in Delco, right? Like, that's the way it is. But, but Ephesians says, well, when anger comes, don't sin. You don't have to enter into sin. You don't have to break relationship. That anger might be a signal to you. So, so there's a contrast here, like old righteousness, don't murder. Heart righteousness, when God gets your heart, 
Let anger be like a warning sign in you. I'm not going to sin. Ephesians says this. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, just as best as you can. Like, make it a short deal. If you get angry, you're probably going to get angry. Some of you are very placid. You don't get angry that much. It's no fun. Let me just tell you, it's not good for you. It's pretty natural for me. But the, the word is, don't let it last. Don't give it oxygen. Don't try to keep it alive, right? And then ultimately, Ephesians says, don't let the devil have a foothold in your anger, right? It's the same kind of pattern there where he, where he talks about lust. He goes on in the same direction. So here, here's a pattern. These are not laws. You don't have to leave church to go reconcile. The, the, I, Jesus is getting creative here. All of these things are how kingdom creativity can come to the heart that's yielded to God to do something far more full and healing and part of what God is doing in the world in you first and then out to the world. What God wants to do is soften your heart so that you ultimately kind of don't need a law. You become uh, the righteousness of God. You become someone who doesn't want to really hold anger against anybody, who wants in any kind of confrontation or adversarial relationship to bring reconciliation. Let's get the whole reconciliation going here. What Jesus is trying to do is shape your heart. He's trying to make you uh, like him. We see that in Jesus. That's what we like about Jesus. Man, this guy's got a whole different set of tools to work with. Here, let's go on to this next one here, which is adultery and then leading to lust. The rule is you're not allowed to have sex with somebody you're not married to, uh, not somebody else's uh, uh, spouse. Uh, if you're in a marriage, you're not supposed to go outside of that. You're not supposed to have sex before you're in a marriage. All this stuff is just seems like, like some ancient teaching to us at this point. All of our movies disregard that, right? There's not too many movies about don't committing adultery or, or limit, limit your sex to your marriage, right? Okay, but then Jesus says, I tell you that somebody, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and I told you a better translation would be in order to lust, in order to nurture lust, just like I don't want you to nurture anger in your life, I don't want you to nurture lust in your life, okay? So anger comes, you don't give it a foothold, same with lust. Lust comes, man, there's a desire for somebody I'm not married to. I'm not going to nurture that. I'm not going to let the sun go down on that. That's going to that's, that's have a short life. I think of it sometimes like this. If I'm in a situation and lust just occurs to me, just as natural, it's a very human thing, right? I, just, I want that to bounce off. I want to bounce my eyes off. Job has this great uh, uh, line. He says uh, in, in 31.1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully after a young woman, right? Now, that's not only a good plan. It's a plan. He's got a plan what to do. I've got a plan what to do. When, I, when, I'm, when lust comes at me, that human kind of desire for somebody that I don't have any covenant relationship, I'm not married to, um, uh, I've got a plan. I want to bounce off of that and maybe pray. I, sometimes I'll pray for somebody that I would be tempted to lust after, okay? So heart righteousness says this, deep respect for others, right? Um, uh, honoring people who are sexually attractive to you by not cultivating lust. Um, taking the unseen as seriously 
as the physical. By the way, Jesus is taking this so seriously, right? It's really seriously. He's got all those cut it off and throw it away kind of solutions in there. And the truth is he's, he's using hyperbole because cutting off everything and throwing it all away wouldn't stop your heart from lusting. He's going after your heart. So if you withhold like, um, like permission for yourself to lust because you're not going to commit adultery, you're missing Jesus' point here. Now we're going to get to divorce, which is such a sensitive thing to talk about. And last week I just uh, I got here and I had to fly. So I want to talk about this at more length here, okay? Jesus says, it has been said, anybody who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anybody who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anybody who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so <clears throat> this is tricky in a number of different ways, but um, it's tricky especially because he speaks so shortly of it, just counting on us to do the math, to do the, the, uh, you know, the extension. This is what, remember what I said about murder and lust and all this? Just keep extending this in these other Oh, ways, but I'll do what I can here to uh, uh, speak about this, okay? So uh, what he's essentially saying is, A, the old law was divorced correctly. Um, and so, by the way, if anybody in here is divorced and you're just, this is, I'm going to go too quickly to do this justice. If you want to talk about this later, I'd be glad to. But um, what he's saying is, if you divorce a woman, and by this way, this whole thing is skewed towards men. The whole thing, the whole system is, looks at it like somebody is somebody's wife, but it's not exactly the other way around. Like they are subsidiary, they're part of me, and then I can divorce them for any reason whatsoever, okay? The only thing they were supposed to do was give a certificate of divorce, which would say, this woman is, is not bound to me anymore. She could remarry. She could be taken into another home. It's protection for the woman to carry around the certificate of divorce. And in some ways, that's what divorce is now, is to say what started legally and in front of God has now been broken. And so the practice that he's coming against is somebody who would be so callous just dismissing his wife and then not even giving her a certificate of divorce so that she's essentially left very few options, perhaps being a prostitute being one of them. It's just, it's so far in one way from our culture that you have to do a lot of explaining. But what I want to show you is this. What he's actually going for is go way past this. Certainly the highest thing God calls us to is not just like do your divorce legally correctly. The highest thing is not that, but it's instead a deep respect for marriage and recognizing how severe the consequences are in every divorce. He fortifies that in uh, Matthew 19, and he says so much more there. I want to just show you this, this uh, part here. So let's, let's look at this. Some Pharisees came to test him, okay? They, they weren't coming to Jesus like, Jesus, I really want to know how to how to build my wife into just the, you know, just the queen of my life. You know, I just, I want to I build an incredible marriage. They came to test. In other words, how can we divorce and get what we want? Remember the, the woman who was at the well 
In John 4, there's a, the woman who's in the well, or not, she's not in the well. <laughs> Thanks for working with me. She's at the well and she's alone, probably scorned by her culture there. And Jesus says at one point to her, that's right, you're, you know, you're not married now. You've had, you've had five husbands, right? And we think, oh my gosh, what kind of sinner is she? And he goes, right now you're not with anybody that you're married to, right? You're with a guy, but it's not, you're not married. And we, and we kind of think, or in, cult, in Christian culture, it's been like, whew, what a brazen woman. No, this woman had been dismissed by five different people who had vowed themselves to her. She had been dismissed to, to probably on the sixth one, she's like, what is the sense of marrying you, dude? Everybody just, just leaves me. It's brutal. It's abusive. Right? And so when Jesus talks about this, he's talking to these Pharisees, and they're trying to carve out a way that guys can have what guys want. The woman they want, when they want, everything they want, and then gone after they're done with her. For whatever reason, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay? That's one of the philosophies of the day. There's more to it than that. There's two different schools of thought on this. And Jesus says, no. Haven't you read at the beginning, the creator made them for each other, is what he's saying, male and female. They were created in the image of God. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife. Haven't you, haven't you read the law that you're using to test me? Which has at the heart of it, at the root of it, what marriage is, is the leaving of the family home, the family of origin, and the joining of two people into one. It's a picture of marriage in the Bible, right? And he says, they'll be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. They'll no longer be two, but one flesh. And Jesus is just appealing. No, none of this is good. All of this is, this is what God intends, the joining together. So uh, let no one ever separate or tear asunder, we used to say, right? Why then did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? As though Moses commanded people to send wives away. He's like, you hard-hearted idiots, right? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it is not that way from the beginning. That's not how it ever was supposed to be. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another woman, commits adultery. In other words, you are breaking something that has eternal consequences, relational consequences, it's uh, just, just brutal. You are meant to be together. And harm is always cause. You see how the, the switch comes here from like, hey, can we just like get rid of a, a woman? Can we just, what do you say? And that's just, it's as though scripture is this thing that you debate about. And the relationships are nothing. As though that woman at the well was nothing. But to Jesus, she was a precious sister that he spoke to. Now really, there's so much more that you could say about this, but I'll just say it's never best to divorce. And there's always options. Even, even in the case of adultery, the word doesn't say you have to divorce. The, the idea that Jesus is doing here, statement after statement, is this. How can kingdom creativity come into any situation. Divorce is, if anything good, it's like a last resort thing 
that just is like if, if there could be such a thing as a good divorce, it's just a divorce which is just like rather than this woman stay in abuse or stay in a situation where the husband has left her a long time ago or stay in a situation where faithfulness is not being carried out, maybe in the, just the best last case situation that love would look like, let's have appropriate closure so that you're not stuck in a situation which is named marriage, but which in fact isn't marriage, right? And once you get to the heart of this, you get to the, to the hope of it. And my wife's here, and it's it, nice. One of the things that we said early, in the early days, we always said we won't get divorced. We'll never get divorced. But the heart of it is so much more than that. We always say, if we're never going to get divorced, then what are we going to do? We're just going to have a lame marriage or an adequate marriage or just let every ag- aggravation kind of drive us further apart? No, we just said, let's give ourselves to one another. And we really have over the years. Like, this is a lot of years now, 35, right? Good, pass that little. It's just the law. Just man's ability to remember a number is not the test, right? But the heart of it is this. The heart of it is this, that I love her very much. I love her more than I ever loved her before because for 35 years, as much as we could, we've tried to like, let kingdom goodness come into our hearts to bind us into something really strong and good. And we're not, you know, one of the things that, that kingdom life, it like backs you away from the line, right? If, if you get rid of anger in your heart, you're backing away from the line where you're ever going to murder anybody. You are, you're starting to be infused with the kingdom of God. Okay, the next one that comes along. And by the way, by the way, I love, I love what Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says this, that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. This, is Jesus making this harder or softer? Well, on the one hand, he's making it harder. Like, yeah, you're not allowed to anger with just impunity. You're not allowed to lust with impunity. But I'm trying to, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. What God is always trying to do is bring us into kingdom life here on earth in real people. What, that's what Dallas is saying. Dallas is saying, this is the way heaven is going to be. Jesus is trying to teach you how to live in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And then about oaths, oh, so I talked a little bit about this. I think this is sort of a funny one because... The idea, I mean, by the end, he's saying, do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair or hair white or black. It's like pre-Clairol, right? You know, and all you need to say is simply yes or no. So the, the law is this, like, if you swear on God, don't break it, because you use God's name. You, you literally took God's name in vain, right? I swore on God. You know what we have in our culture that's very close to this? In court? put your hand on what? A Bible, right? Why? You're essentially saying, if my hand was not on this Bible, I would just lie to you, right? But I can't lie. My hand is on a Bible. Well, I'm not sure that works, eh? Right? And what Jesus is saying is, look, stop swearing by things. You can't, you can't gather power to yourself by manipulating the situation, by piling on you know, like, I swear on my mother's grave, you know, stick a needle in my eye, you know, gold temples, whatever. You can't swear by anything. 
and actually add power to who you are. This is about your heart having integrity so that when you say something, it's true. It's like I think like if you're you know, buying a car from a Christian used car salesman, he'll be, be like, nah, that's not good. Don't, don't buy that one, you know. Like over here is a good one. This is the problem with it. This is what's right about it. And the, Jesus is just saying, look, look, you just tell the truth. Just be the kind of person who uses their words like that. And the next one is about getting back. It's revenge. The law says this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In other words, somebody does something to you, you're allowed to do, and you're even kind of required to do the same thing back to them. This is how wars happen. One tribe would do something, another tribe would get back. That, the first tribe would say, that wasn't equal. We're getting back to you, now retaliate back. Does this not sound like modern warfare? That's not equal. Or sometimes we'll do a little thing, like recently our country had this little tit-for-tat thing, and we just go like, all right, it's equal, we'll stop. Right? You don't think there's some Middle Eastern ethics going on there? Right? What Jesus is saying, hey, how about this? Instead of retaliation, how about we reach into a whole different pot for what to do? How about this? If somebody strikes you on one cheek, you... You, you offer them the other cheek as well. Again, this is not a law. You don't have to teach your kids at school. If a bully hits them, they're supposed to say, hey, you want to hit me again? What he's saying, just a kind of a principle, there's a whole different pot to dip into. I don't have to treat you as badly as you treated me. And then ultimately it goes on to this idea of having enemies, Right? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you people could be like God is. You know who God is? God's a God who is good to people all the time. All the worst people in the world. Think of the worst person in the world right now. You know what? God sends rain on them. So their garden, they have nice tomatoes too. Right? God doesn't go like, oh, we're going to go through your neighborhood. I'm going to water the, the gardens of all the good people and all the bad people. They don't get good tomatoes. What Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to teach you how God is. It's so different than how you are. And you go, oh, Jesus, it just has to be that way. I have to hate people who hate me. I have to harden my heart against them. He goes, well, you think that? Like, that's just the way retail is? No, there's a kingdom. God is changing things to be a different way. And he's using your heart to do that. He's using your heart. When we come to this meal, we're coming up to a meal that is offered to enemies, where Jesus says, God has offered you something different than what first occurs to anyone. He's offered himself. Romans says that we were enemies of God, and while we were enemies of God, God offered his son to us. And when we come to this meal, we are seeing what heaven is like. Now, I want to just say something to you about this. If we live this out, there would be no more enemies. The world, there will be no more wars. Well, it's not exactly true, right? Because Christianity is kind of this thing where we decide first to live like that with hopes of influencing others. That we might be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Right? It's not that there would be no more wars. It's just that we wouldn't be the problem. But we have hopes that God is making the whole world whole. 
and that one day everything will be like this. And we actually have been taught to pray that. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But there would be no more wars. Marriages would be whole and healthy and edifying. People would be more willing to enter into marriage, less looking for the door outside of marriage or the door out of a marriage. Right? We're talking about the kingdom of God happening, not someday in the future when everything's just blinked away and then a whole new reality happens. But now, as people say yes, as people say, soften my heart to this. Let me give you a couple of things to try as we walk away from this. And again, the verse I never get to, but <clears throat> we'll try again another time. I'm going to just give you a list here. I'm going to get you to pick two, okay? Because there's no way anybody could do this all in one week, okay? Pick two. Your favorite two, your least favorite two, whatever you want. One, ask God to change your heart. See, I hear you. I hear it is not about write me a law that I can keep so that I will somehow technically qualify as righteous. God, change my heart, right? Pray for somebody who bugs you. Dallas says, we don't pray for our enemies. We don't even pray for people who bug us, right? Like, how about there's somebody in your life who just bugs the you-know-what out of you? What if you just said, this week I'm going to pray for that person, okay? You'll be enacting the kingdom of God. Pray for your spouse. Maybe your spouse bugs you. I don't know. Maybe it all goes together, right? <laughs> but just pray. Oh, God, may Barbie build up this week. May I be, you know, perfectly um, tuned to how to actually be a great teammate and partner to her, okay? Pray for somebody you lust after, okay? That would be a great prayer. Like, change this person from some kind of, like, cut-out, you know, you know, object in my mind to a person. I pray that she would be well. I pray, that, I pray that she would know your joy, Lord. I pray that she would be part of your kingdom goodness. You know, and I pray that I wouldn't be part of the problem of her life. Right? Go the extra mile. There's a saying we get right out of this passage. In other words, somebody requires something of you to this. Go an extra mile so that you might be like a son or a daughter of your father who goes the extra mile at the cross. Right? Preempt conflict if you can. See if you can get out in front of it. See if you can make the best of it. See if you can you know, in, invite somebody into a different version of how it sort of destines or seems destined to go, right? And then bless an enemy, okay? Why don't you stand up? We'll take communion together.